In this episode of Emergence, I'll be talking to Dr. David Swain of the Exotic and Emerging Avian Viral Diseases Research Centre for the USDA. Welcome to the Emergence podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Dr. Alistair King from the International Veterinary Health Department. All thoughts and opinions expressed during this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the company. We talked recently to Professor Ian Brown about what was happening around the world with avian influenza. We've had some further questions from customers. So I'm very pleased to be able to get Dr. David Swain onto this episode. David is the laboratory director in Athens, Georgia, USA, running the Exotic and Emerging Avian Viral Diseases Research Center for the Agricultural Research Service, US Department of Agriculture. Let's hear what he's got to say in response to your questions. Great to be joined today by Dr. David Swain. He is the laboratory director at the Southeast Poultry Research Laboratory. That's for the United States National Poultry Research Center. David, you've been doing a lot on avian influenza. I know that's not the only disease that you cover. Maybe you'd like to just give people first an idea of what your role is with the USDA. Yeah, so uh, our laboratory is based in Athens, Georgia, USA. We uh, are called the Southeast Poultry Research Lab as part of the U.S. National Poultry Research Center, and we conduct uh, research on very specific diseases that uh, impact U.S. poultry industries as well as globally industries. Our main uh, research projects are avian influenza and Newcastle disease on the exotic disease side. And we also usually get called in to do research on emerging viruses, for example. We have done work on COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2. We've done work on the original SARS virus, West Nile, the 1918 flu, MERS, etc. That's kind of the exotic format or, that we have uh, for, for research. The other side that we do is we do work on endemic poultry viral diseases. And um, we are uh, paired with um, our sister laboratory, which is uh, the Avian Disease and Oncology Lab in East Lansing, Michigan. They're part of our uh, infrastructure, and we're undergoing a major modernization here in Athens. And primary diseases that, uh, on that, we call them endemic diseases, uh, viral diseases or of course, Merrick's disease, which is a long history of research uh, in uh, the facility in Michigan, but also uh, retroviruses, so lymphoid leukosis complex. And we've worked on enteric viruses. That project went up until last year. We kind of modified that. So now we're working on infectious bursal disease virus as well as rheoviruses. So we have a pretty good sized portfolio and it covers uh, not only the, the pathogen, but we also have uh, projects in uh, genomics uh, on the host side and the chicken side. Thanks, David. There's a massive amount that you're doing there. But today we're going to talk about avian influenza. I know our poultry team were very excited when they heard I was going to be talking to you and they reached out to a couple of their customers and got a couple of questions. Just before I dive into those, though, two weeks ago, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have David on, but avian influenza is quietening down a bit. And then in the UK, suddenly we've had another couple of cases suddenly pop up. I've just a couple of alerts and new cases reoccurring, and it 
seems to be just stirring up. I wonder if you'd like to give us just an update of where we are with avian influenza and this particular season's outbreak. Yeah, we've, uh, I think globally, have had uh, a rough couple of years as far as the number of both wild bird cases and cases in both commercial and village or backyard poultry. Principally from this uh, this clay uh, that's you've probably heard talked about two three four four B and this this virus has been around since oh about ten years ago is when it emerged uh, to be a first time identified but it's uh, been spreading around the globe a couple of times uh, some transcontinental movement of that virus uh, kind of based initially in Asia but um, had spread through uh, the Middle East into Africa and then across into Europe and then twice it has crossed uh, into North America. Of course, the second time was the 2344B. The previous time was a, a, a cousin virus. We have had a huge uptick uh, since the fall of 2021 in outbreaks of high path AI. And we in North America have been watching very closely the events that have unfolded uh, there in Asia and in Europe and Africa and the Middle East, watching that virus move. I think the 2344B, which has really been the beginning of this outbreak began in the fall, uh, first, you know, based in Central Asia in cases in both wild birds and domestic poultry, and then spread from there into to Europe and then down the Middle East and down into Africa. And then it made a, a turn, a complete U-turn, and came back that way into the same direction. So we've, we've had this experience globally of the virus sort of being established uh, in some migratory waterfowl populations that have moved it back and forth bi-directionally. This is definitely behaving differently than we've seen in the past, the way it's starting to get established. And one of the questions, the first question I'll go into, someone said, recently in Ontario, two foxes tested positive for avian influenza. Both ended up dying from it. Given that this strain can infect mammals and humans, do you think it will become endemic in the area due to native wildlife acting as a reservoir? I'm also aware that it's been picked up in a couple of wild turkeys as well in the US. So I think that fits in very nicely with everything that's going on. Yeah, it's a great question. We um, have been looking really, I think, for the last several years, thinking about, hey, is this virus going to become established in various wildlife populations? And of course, we've been mainly thinking about migratory aquatic birds, either uh, waterfowl, you know, ducks and geese, swans, or shorebirds. And we have uh, you know, evidence, we go back and look at the surveillance that was done and reported in the United States in 2014-15. That was our first uh, outbreak with this particular type of virus. And when we had the outbreak 2014-2015, we had a, a pretty small number, I think today, looking back, of wild bird cases. We had 75, you know. Of course, in 2014-15, we thought, wow, at 75 wild bird cases, they were distributed across multiple states. I think there were 15 states. I thought, man, this is really bad, you know. Well, put that in perspective, when you look at surveillance and that sampling of wild bird populations uh, throughout North America, Canada, and the U.S., so we, we found that the virus really quickly tapered off in the wild bird populations, and there were really only a couple of rare detections in 2016. And then surveillance in 2017, 18, 19, et cetera, didn't show any of this high path AI virus, this H5 high path virus in the wild migratory birds. So it kind of came in in 2014, 15. Uh, it, it, it was dispersed into domestic poultry and some wild birds. And then it was eradicated in the domesticated poultry. And then it, and I'll use the word, just kind of burned out in wild birds. We didn't see it again after 2016. That was just a few cases in 2016. 
Well, today it's a little bit different um, in that I mentioned earlier the experience in Asia, Europe, and Africa, and the Middle East, where we've had two full years of this virus being in wild birds. And, and it makes you wonder, is this now become a reservoir? It's a little early in the United States and Canada for North America for us to know for sure. But we do know by looking at the sampling that we've had a large number of cases uh, since December of 2021. And so less than a year, we've had 1,826 wild bird cases. So you can contrast that to 75 in the previous outbreak. You say, wow, that's a big difference. And if you take it and look at a map, you'll see that that's spread out uh, across 42 states versus 15 in the previous outbreak. And then if you look at that map and you kind of plot uh, where all those cases are, you can see there are some areas that's really heavily concentrated in wild birds. And so now for us, the, the challenge here in North America is to continue this wild bird surveillance as we go into the fall and winter season. Because beginning sometime in late August, we'll start seeing the wild waterfowl migrating from their northern uh, summer breeding grounds moving southward to their winter nesting, winter stayover grounds uh, where the weather's warmer. And at that migratory point, we'll be able to see, is that virus uh, still present? And if it is, uh, is it of a, on a high rate? And will we have a repeat of our outbreaks uh, from 2022 uh, into 2023? And so I think we're kind of holding our breath, hoping, hey, this is going to burn out again. But, but with, the, with the huge number of cases we've had in 2022, it would suggest it's very widespread in a variety of wild bird species that migrate. Uh, and, and a huge geographic area spread much bigger uh, than we saw in 2014, 2015. So right now, it may be a little early for us in North America. So, hey, it's established in uh, the wild populations. We, we don't know, uh, you know, wild birds would be the first thing to look at, the migratory waterfowl. And then cases that are in the mammals, you know, they could be spillover, these sporadic cases from actually consuming high concentrations of virus from dead waterfowl. But right now, there hasn't been any evidence, even in Europe, uh, of this being established in these uh, wild mammal species and having it transmitted from, you know, fox to fox between different, uh, you know, family units. So it's more the, the birds that we're currently looking at as, is that where it's changing its behavior? That leads on to this other question, which I think is quite suitable because, or quite apt, because I know in December, we had our first human case of avian influenza in the UK. And subsequently, I couldn't name the month, but I know in the first first half of this year, we have had a case in the US as well of a, hu a human case. So someone was asking, given the chances of spillover to other species, including humans, and possible reassortment if two influenzas infect the same host at the same time, what precautions should poultry workers take? And what should public health agencies and or the World Health Organization do to prepare? You're right. There was uh, one case uh, reported here in the U.S. of a human infection with the H5N1 virus, and that was in a a worker uh, in a depopulation crew. So they had exposure to uh, infected uh, poultry. Uh, that person uh, had mild symptoms and were, were treated with uh, an antiviral drug, oseltamivir, and recovered. So it was a a mild case uh, with a, a good outcome. You mentioned there's the case in the UK, and then I think there are uh, a series of cases in late uh, 2020 in Russia. It's the same hemagglutinin uh, clade, the 2344B. That particular virus in Russia was an H5N8. So just 
so we all know is that was just a reassortment of the neuraminidase. It's still the same hemagglutinin. And so there's just a few of these sporadic human cases. Um, and, you know, for us in the United States, of course, we have individual states have uh, public health programs and departments as well as our National Center for Disease Control. And they put out guidelines uh, for workers that might have occupational exposure to this virus. That occupational exposure could be in, you know, wild birds. If you're a, a person who works for uh, one of the um, environmental agencies, you may go out and be picking up, you know, dead wild birds and you take precautions so that you don't have exposure from wild birds. Uh, but also uh, within uh, crews that uh, work uh, for depopulation of affected poultry, you know, those, they, they have guidelines of what you need to, to do to protect yourself. Uh, we use the term uh, PPE, uh, which is protect, you know, personal protective equipment. That's things that would help protect you. Uh, and that could include, uh, you know, wearing uh, some type of a, a respiratory protection, a variety of masks. Uh, and those are kind of specific. And it's not, you know, for me to get in to say, you know, what are the, the specifics of that? But yeah, those are issues that are uh, put forward to make sure we do protect uh, ourselves either as you know, workers in uh, depopulation crews or those who are working in wildlife. Uh, myself, I'm a veterinary pathologist, so, you know, we've spent many years working on uh, postmortems of dead animals, and sometimes those dead animals can have a variety of diseases, so you have to be careful uh, to make sure you use the right kind of PPE and the right kind of handling of materials and samples not to expose yourself. Uh, and that's, you know, for a variety of, of diseases. Even influenza isn't the only one, as you say, that we need to worry about and some of those terms you're using, everyone's much more aware of now after COVID and the, what we need to be aware of there. Similar things coming up for how we should be trying to control. Considering how things are changing, if the disease does become endemic, one of the questions is, would vaccination be the most effective way to control the disease? And then there was another question about pros and cons of vaccination strategy. So we could probably roll those together a bit. There's a lot going on talking about vaccination for the future. I definitely don't see it as the the silver bullet. I don't think it's going to solve everything. Interested to know what you think, David. Yeah, we have uh, a lot of institutions, including ours here in Athens, that have done a great deal of work on vaccines and some work on vaccination. And, and I, I want to kind of separate those out because, you know, vaccine is the product that you give the birds that you hope develop an immune response. And then vaccination is the procedure you use to do that. And, uh, you know, I guess we can think about, you know, you take your kids to uh, to their their pediatrician and you get their immunizations, you know. And so it's a one-on-one -on -one thing where you take them. But when you start looking at poultry, you say, this is a huge population. So if you have, uh, you know, across the world, we raise about uh, somewhere in the range between 30 and 40 billion chickens a year. And you talk about how do you vaccinate 30 billion birds? It's, it's a, a huge endeavor. And so vaccination becomes a science of its own of how do you do that in different types of poultry and different ages of poultry and how quickly do you get the immune response? Cause you want that to be protective. So those are all critical questions. But the, the first thing you would ask, I think is the, the critical thing to say is that, you know, vaccination by itself is not going to be a solution. Um, the, you know, the vaccination is one tool and it, if it's used correctly can greatly help in a program of high path avian influenza control and with the other components it actually could lead to uh, an eradication strategy 
And we have uh, multiple examples of how vaccine has been used in the past in a correct manner that has allowed and favored eradication. But the vaccine itself, just giving the vaccine does not result in eradication. And, and I think you would know as well as most of our listeners that, you know, the critical things are is that we have to have a strong program of biosecurity on each farm. That's to reduce the chances of the virus getting in. We have to have a great program. It's going to be going to be an institutional program, most likely ran by provincial, state, or national governments of diagnosis so that you can find where the virus is and know where it's at. Uh, information is what helps us solve problems. And then uh, when you find the virus uh, in a flock, the outcome is generally using a depopulation program. So you can kind of quarantine that, that farm, keep it there, and then eliminate that virus from the farm. So the vaccine has many positive attributes, is that uh, when it's given correctly, uh, what it will do is it will increase resistance of those birds to getting infected. And, and what that translates into is if you look at research and research we've done and others have done, is that it takes a lot higher dose of virus over a longer period of time to produce an infection in a properly vaccinated birds. And many times you can't even produce infection. The second thing is that if you do look at the population, let's say the farm, what it will do is it will uh, prevent illness and death if the birds are exposed and, the, and if the majority of them have immunity. So you've heard the term herd immunity, and that's a, a real term. And if you do get some of the birds that are vaccinated that become infected, they generally have a lower replication of the virus and less amount of the virus is put back in the environment. And that's how it's kind of spread is from bird to bird is by contaminating the environment and then they pick it up from the environment and, and infect other birds. So the vaccine greatly reduces the ability of the birds to become infected. If they do get infected, it's a smaller number then it would be a whole flock. It'd be a, a percentage of them might get it. And they produce a lot less virus. And then it produces less contamination in that farm. And then the, the big science part of this is, is when you, when you do that and you look at uh, transmission, and I want, actually I'm going to switch the term to spread. You look at spread from farm to farm. What that does is it reduces the ability of that virus to spread from farm to farm because you've reduced the amount that can be produced. The, the people who are epidemiologists, they do studies and they use a formula. In the end, they, they use this term called the R-naught. And that's a number that tells you the relative, um, I'll use the word risk, uh, of a virus moving from premise to premise. And so you want that R-naught to go down. Uh, if it's one and above, then you've got a good chance that it's going to continue to spread farm to farm. So that vaccination has many, many positive things, including it decreases the ability of that virus to spread because you produce less and less virus in those vaccinated flocks. Now you'd say, what's, what's herd immunity? You know, and, and that herd immunity is the critical piece, which means you have to have vaccines that are very effective and you have to be able to give them to a majority of the poultry in that geographic area. There was some uh, work done back uh, in the mid-2000s by Dr. Buma from from the Netherlands, and this was work done in Indonesia in the field looking at vaccination rates. And somewhere between 60 and 80 percent was the kind of the sweet spot of you need that kind of number of birds that are immunized. I mean, they have to you know, converge and serial conversion to get this kind of herd immunity. So that's all. It's not just about my farm 
and the birds get it's 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 the whole area has to be vaccinated to get good immunity and then that will have a huge huge impact thanks david i i like that you talk about vaccine as a tool i think that's really important and it, when we talk about it as a tool, it's important because it does make you think about, about it. You can't build a house with just a screwdriver. You need to have a whole heap of different things. And that's what vaccines fall into. They're not going to do everything, but they do some, do some good things. You've explained quite a few, few of the good things there. And, and you could listen to it and think, well, why aren't we, why aren't we vaccinating now? That's not officially a question I've got written down, but I think it follows nicely from what you've been saying. So, yeah, why aren't why aren't we vaccinating everything? Why aren't we just getting out there? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, um, animal control, as far as diseases, animal health control, really becomes uh, an issue that is decided at the national level, and then it may actually filter down to even for us the state level or provincial level of certain types of diseases. But if we have a disease, it's a national program disease, for example. And vaccination is a, is a national decision process to do that. It involves, uh, in the case of the government, the federal government involves the state government. It involves the uh, poultry production industries. Um, it involves even down to the consumer level of, of what we do in animal health control programs. Now, we look across the globe and you'll say, well, we've had this, uh, this H5 virus since 1996 that's causing high path outbreaks initially in Asia. And then it from there it spread in uh, 2003, late 2003, it spread out of, uh, you know, one country out of, of China was the original place where it was diagnosed. From there, then it did spread to other Asian countries and slowly it's moved out. So in that approximately 26 years, we've seen, uh, you know, big changes in individual countries. Some countries were trying to battle this high path AI outbreak just like we have battled in the United States. So, you know, if you look back in history, you'll see that the United States has had nine, according to my count, nine high path AI outbreaks where we met that particular disease with uh, our, our depopulation or stamping out programs and we were successful in eradicating that. With this H5 virus, which was really kind of unique among high path viruses, it had the ability to infect you know wild birds fairly quickly, as well as domesticated poultry, especially waterfowl, and that kind of made a new mix of high path AI and its ability to infect different bird species. And so, some countries that were first facing their first high path AI outbreak were not prepared. Um, they didn't have the veterinary infrastructure that could do the diagnostics and then quarantine and then the uh, the stamping out program. And so uh, very quickly after that virus came into their country, they had widespread outbreaks occurring in multiple establishments, especially smallholder uh, poultry owners. You know, many of them uh, lost all their birds and they lost their, their supply chains. They couldn't get new birds to come in and replace those. And many of them, you know, only had small numbers of birds and that was kind of part of their livelihood. Those countries, be many of them would be low-income countries if you looked at a national scale, the virus became endemic. Um, and so because it became endemic and it was a food crisis for them, a security, a food security issue, those countries, some of them implemented vaccination so they could continue to produce food for their people. And uh, the outcome for those countries, and they're not exporting countries for the most part, most of them are producers for just their people or, and then they may even be importing from other countries at the same time of poultry. So they implemented these vaccination programs because the, the virus was devastating. It was 
wiping out their poultry population. It was creating food insecurity for their people. And so it wasn't the vaccine caused endemic infections. It's the other way around. Endemic infections required the use of the vaccine to maintain that, that livelihood. Now you can fast forward to us, uh, you know, United States, we've had a, a program as much of Europe the same way and other high-income countries of, uh, of identification of outbreaks, uh, quarantine, and then depopulation has been uh, a successful program. But this virus has changed. And, and I think you alluded to that in the beginning is that, hey, what's, this, what's happened in the, the environment? What's happened in the ecology? Is this virus established now in reservoirs? Is it going to keep coming back and back and back? Are we going to be facing this onslaught of exposure to our backyard poultry as well as our commercial poultry? And if so, do we need to look at something differently? And I think that's the question we all have to ask in an honest way is that can vaccine be a tool even in high income countries? And how could it be used in our production setting in a high income country to improve um, and increase and accelerate you know, control or eradication of high path AI by minimizing the negative aspects of vaccination? So one of the questions is, what are the potential implications of vaccination on live live bird exports and on processed poultry? And you've touched on on that. To me, one of the real implications of vaccination in these countries where we're currently not is that we're going to have to develop some really good surveillance systems. As you said, this isn't a sterile immunity from vaccines. They still do shed. If we can find a sterile immunity, that would be great. But there are not many vaccines for many diseases that really stop any shedding at all. So certainly one implication is surveillance. Uh, What are your thoughts on that and any other implications there? Yeah, I just want to second what you said about there are very few infections where you get, uh, and you use the word, I think, sterilizing immunity. And I think it's really, you can say it for sure, if you have a respiratory virus infection and you're trying to prevent that infection, it's a much more difficult uh, standard to meet uh, with respiratory viruses than it is, say, a systemic virus. Because in systemic infections, you get production of good humoral antibodies and cell-mediated immunity, and they go in, they attack it, and they stop the pathogen. But on the respiratory side, you know, a lot of that virus grows right on the surface of the epithelium where you have just the air and the antibodies are on the inside. And so you don't get quite as good immunity. So yeah, it's a, it's a tall order to say we want sterilizing immunity. So that's why you have to look at vaccine as a tool, one piece in the toolbox that helps you reduce that severity of that infection to make the birds resistant to that infection. And that's all the critical part of it. You know, I think, you know, what I hear, you know, out there, what about uh, its impact on, on exports? And I think, you know, for countries that are high income and countries that are exporting poultry, that is a, a real critical issue. The thing they don't want to happen is for our export markets to be cut off because we use a vaccine. And uh, the OIE code, which I think is clear, it says that vaccination should not impact exports as long as there's adequate surveillance. And so that is the issue, is how do you do surveillance to assure your trading partners that you're not exporting the virus, the high path AI virus. It's not about the vaccine because you're not afraid of the vaccine. It's, it's just producing immunity in the poultry as they're produced. It's the, it, is there any hidden virus in there? And that's the part that we, we all want to make sure we have the right kind of surveillance. I think this question is really going to summarize most of what we've already talked about. Could high pathogenic avian influenza be managed like ILT? 
We're very successful at stamping out outbreaks with communication, biosecurity, and vaccination of buffer zones after cases. Could we tackle HPI in the same way? That's a good question. And, uh, you know, part of it is we have to learn and understand about the ecology of, of the avian influenza virus and, and how that strategies developed may be a little different than other diseases and maybe some of it may be the same. So, for example, uh, we know that avian influenza, the high path strain we have currently circulating, infects both wild birds and infects domesticated poultry, either backyard or commercial poultry. So the wild birds are a huge part of this uh, this issue. And in fact, if we just compare kind of the ep- ecology and epidemiology of this virus from today's outbreak versus 2014-15, we can look back and say, you know, some studies that we did looking at the molecular features of the virus from different locations, we could piece together and look at uh, some studies that looked at uh, how the virus would spread based upon uh, mutations and those mutations being uh, solidified in future viruses they transmit. And what we found from the previous outbreak, 2014-15, is that those initial uh, cases in backyard flocks and poultry were clearly uh, introduced from wild birds. They had their closest association with wild bird viruses in the area. But then after the virus moved uh, around and into the Midwest and uh, became causing outbreaks uh, in Midwestern states, the virus <clears throat> was able to change its adaptation so it took less virus to infect uh, domesticated poultry. And the cases were uh, as far as based on this analysis, these cases were a lot more of farm-to-farm spread and, and much less wild bird introduction into farms. So it's a, it's a shift in how that, that virus and that ecology would, would work out. Now, if you look at it today, uh, at least the preliminary studies from our lab and others, still the vast majority of the cases uh, across the U.S. appear to be wild bird introduction or maybe more appropriately talk about environmental contamination and then that virus moving into the house uh, from the contaminated environment around the house, uh, as opposed to direct linkages between farms or between geographic areas that are related to agricultural activity. So when you look at it that way, then you start talking about a vaccination program would have to be kind of developed uh, to fit into understanding uh, those types of ecologies. So it's not just about, well, we could transmit it from farm to farm by agricultural activity, uh, which would be kind of analogous to the ILT, to an ILT example of, of its, its uh, transmit farm to farm or it's retained on that farm because the virus survives the disinfection or decontamination process. In this case, we have an outside part of the environment, outside that four walls of the barn that involves you know wild birds that can then move it back and forth. So those take into account is that, you know, that that process needs to be accounted for, which includes really huge enhancements to the to the biosecurity. And then if you look at a vaccination program, you got to look at more at risk that's related to the epidemiology of the transmission. Uh, so it would be you'd have to know what is the environmental contamination level adjacent, you know, or that geographic area to know what your risk is. And then you may need to do vaccination say, a geographic vaccination as opposed to uh, the old concepts that we have uh, from 50 or 60 years ago, which are mammalian and cattle and render pests and foot and mouth disease, where it's moved by moving the cattle. In this case, we have wild birds that can move it. So it's a, diff- a little bit different there in thinking about how vaccination can be used. Given there is a risk of zoonotic infections, will control of avian influenza, along with stamping out, always be a high priority 
even if the virus doesn't cause substantial mortality in poultry, just because of the potential spillover causing human infections? Yeah, I think there's still going to be a high priority just because it is a highly pathogenic avian influenza virus that can cause devastating disease in poultry. And it can have crossover into humans. We still um, have to be vigilant in surveillance, identify infected flocks, and we'll have to go through that process of depopulation and stamping out of those infected flocks. That's still going to take a lot of logistics. It's going to take some you know, finances to be able to do that at the national level. But we um, have to be vigilant about that part of it. We can't just rely wholly upon the vaccine to be the solution because we do have export markets, which we have to show they're free from high path AI virus for those products leaving in some way. And that's probably another uh, session for you to do is how, how do you do that surveillance? And we also do have to be concerned and cognizant of you know, potential human cases. Although just to you know, make everybody on the same page is you know, the cases of human influenza are generally uh, related to human exposure to the infected birds. Most of them have been occupational. So, for example, depopulation crews, and there's a, a good study published uh, from the Netherlands from early 2000s from their outbreak. It was an H7 virus, not the same virus, but still a high path virus where there was a, a huge occupational exposure. And that's where most of the cases were. This, this H5 virus that we're dealing with and have been for the last 26 years, most of the cases of human infection have been related to people having exposure in the live poultry markets of low-income countries uh, where the birds are moved around between different uh, market systems. And then the, the customer goes into a market and they pick a bird that they want to take home. That bird is then dressed there for them, killed in their view. So they're standing where they can breathe the virus in. So that's where most of the cases have occurred with this particular virus around the world, which most of them have been in low-income countries. So we have to always keep that in mind as part of our control programs, not just protecting the birds, that is our poultry, it's also protecting uh, the environment as well as human health. Excellent. Thank you very much, David. I think our listeners will be fascinated with those those answers to their questions. We're going to have more to talk about with avian influenza in the future. It's not going to go away just by the nature of it. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate your time. And that's all from this edition of the Emergence Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'll speak to you again soon. And in the meantime, I wish you well. Goodbye.